0: for the next couple weeks, so go ahead and turn there. We'll be in Isaiah this week, and we'll look at some of the things that Israel did that were not so great during the reign of some kings that were good and some kings that were bad, and then next week we'll have spring break, so we won't be meeting on Wednesday night, and then we'll come together the week after that to finish our Isaiah study and consider how wonderful of a thing it is to trust Jesus so that's sort of the outline for the next three weeks. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and we'll dive right into it. Lord, we come to you now we thank you for um, for our time uh, tonight uh, to be able to open the book of Isaiah and to consider um, prophecies and to consider communication to your people and to consider how how our ancestors have moved and how you have moved and how you have proven yourself completely trustworthy in all of it. I pray that you would uh, encourage us in this tonight. Um, We also uh, just thank you uh, for the blessing it is to have the word and to have the spirit, that, that in reading it, that in discussing it, that in studying it, that in praying through it, that we could have any understanding at all is a real gift. And I pray that we would never take that for granted. I also pray that the knowledge that we gain just thinking about just the practical application of the wisdom literature that we just finished and now we're moving into the prophets. Um, I pray that that knowledge that we gain um, builds others up in love. I pray that it never puffs us up um, because that would prove to be very, very unfruitful. So we humble ourselves before you tonight and ask that you would speak to us and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This is one of your first times with us on Wednesday nights. We generally, uh, we are moving through books of the Bible, and we spend about two weeks on each book. And so we started in Genesis, we spent a few years in Genesis, we spent a few more years in Exodus, 2003, 2004, thousand four, five, all up through there. And then once we hit Leviticus, we started moving a little more quickly. And so now we are spending about two weeks per book, and so we have landed in Isaiah. We just finished up the wisdom literature, and I thoroughly enjoyed Um, our discussions through that, and being able to work through that together. That was a really sweet time. And so as we move tonight um, into our next section, which is the major prophets, Uh, tonight in the book of Isaiah, we're going to be talking about trust. I've mentioned this before, and I want everyone to know in case you want to study it alongside, um, Mark Dever's Old Testament survey is our outline that we're using. To move this quickly through the books of the Bible, it's kind of difficult to just Figure out some structure and put it to it and then teach it. And so he's done that work. And so we're using his outline as our general structure for our time together. So if that's a resource y'all wanted to get or look at, uh, I encourage you to do that. And then I also want to encourage you the same thing I shared last week get a study Bible. Um, Study Bibles have so much. When we're moving at this kind of a pace, through the Word, and and we want you to be reading what we're studying along with what we're studying in Hebrews on Sunday, a study Bible is a wonderful resource to help you gain some understanding and point out things that may not be obvious in a first read-through. So um, we're going to be talking about trust tonight in the book of Isaiah. We obviously know that there are good places to put your trust and bad places to put your trust, so a couple questions I want to begin with. First, what way do many of us learn that we've placed our trust in the wrong thing? what way do many of us learn that we have placed our trust in the wrong thing? When you lose something, negative results, when it fails, disappointment. How do you learn that you've put your trust in the wrong person? They fail you, you get burned, things like that. Now, what is often the result when we get burned? What, what's sometimes are, are the result in our hearts when that happens? Bitterness? Retreat? Yeah? Put your guard up? Anger? Is it foolish to trust other people? A couple people answered too quickly on that one. Yes! Yeah. Um, the thing that I... And have enjoyed about studying Isaiah is that I think it gives us some really solid, sober groundwork on trust and what it means to put our trust in the wrong things and what it means to put our trust in the right things. So um, those are a few questions just to get us going. The basic outline of, of Isaiah is it's a 66-chapter book, and with the exception of four chapters in the middle, the entire book is made up of poetry, oracles, and prophecy. And so in a read-through, sometimes on poetry, oracles, and prophecy, it's difficult to make sense. It's not really a narrative. There's a lot of things that are um, symbolic and metaphorical and allegorical, and, and, and it's hard to make sense of it in a first read-through. And a lot of times, people will launch off into reading Isaiah, and they'll get about five to six chapters in and just kind of say, I don't even know what I'm looking at. So I want to share a brief outline of the book so that we can kind of take a bird's-eye view and kind of know what we're looking at in the particular chapter. So there's four chapters in the middle. Um, that we'll talk more about later on in the study, but chapters 1 through 35 are about God and his expression toward his people in response to their expression towards him. And there's quite a bit of doom and gloom in the first 35 chapters of Isaiah. Um, it's a difficult read through because you're looking at people who are called God's people who are not acting like it. And then 36 through 39 is when the poetry stops. And there's a, the, a recording of a dramatic historical event, which is the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians. So there's this poetry, this oracle, this prophecy, and then in those four chapters right in the middle, it is a historical um, capturing of the siege of Jerusalem by the Assyrians, which we'll talk about. And then 40 through 66, the remainder of the book, offers more reason for hope. And a theme uh, through the entire book is that the people of Judah are enticed regularly to trust the wrong things. The northern kingdom has already um, crumbled for the most part. Southern, or Southern kingdom, Judah, is what, what we're talking about. When I say kingdom of, um, and, and Israel and things, I'm talking about Judah in, in the book of Isaiah. And the theme for the entire book is that the people of Judah are enticed regularly to trust in the wrong things. And so that's kind of the approach we're taking to understanding Isaiah. What are some of these wrong things that they trust in? Why did they go down that road? Why would they have considered that was a good idea at the time? So the basic two-part outline for our study tonight is the problem of trusting in the wrong things and then the solution of properly placed trust. The problem of trusting in the wrong things and the solution of properly placed trust. So this book was written during the second half of the 8th century B.C. So that's like 750 to 700 B.C., so about 700, 750 years before Christ. And during this time, five kings reigned in the southern kingdom of Judah, the kingdom that was built around Jerusalem. So the southern kingdom Judah is built around Jerusalem, And while Isaiah was prophesying, what we're studying the book of Isaiah, there were five kings that reigned. Um, And I want you all to know, all of this history is very important. So write the details down, keep looking at them, consider them, because it helps us to understand the story and the prophecy that we're going to engage. Five different kings reigned, and we believe that Isaiah's reign began at the end of Uzziah's kingship and ended during King Manasseh's. Um, So Uzziah reigned for 52 years, and he played a massive part in building up the kingdom and getting prestige and getting power and gaining footing, and Uzziah did that in large part. His son Jotham, which was one of the kings who was beginning, one of the first kings during Isaiah's prophecy, his son Jotham reigned for 16 years, and he continued his father's work. Now, you've heard Ben talk about this, the time of the kings, You know, we move from the time of the judges to the time of the kings, and it was it's good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, and it's, it's sort of this up and down roller coaster of seeing these guys who either lead really well or lead really poorly. And for the most part, Jotham continued what, what Uzziah had, had begun and done for 52 years, and he did that for 16 years. After that, his son Ahaz reigned for 16 years, and Ahaz was horrible. So what I want y'all to see is Isaiah's prophesying during this kingship where these things were established and great growth happened with Uzziah, and then Jotham continued that, and then sure enough, you get a bad king, and Ahaz really drives it into the ground. I mean, he, he is not a good king, and then Hezekiah, after him, is a good king for the most part, and he reigns for 29 years, and then there's Manasseh, who's like pretty much one of the most evil kings that ever reigned and he reigned for 55 years. So you see this up and down with the nation as they're going. And so I want us to start at the beginning. That's where we're at. That's what's going on during the time of Isaiah's prophesying. So look at chapter one with me. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So those are the kings that I just outlined for you. And he's saying, This is the vision that he saw as a prophet during the reign of those kings that I just explained. And in verse 2, it says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. It goes on like that for the better part of 35 chapters. So you hear this sharp warning for their obstinate, their their refusal to obey God. And so, what I'm wanting us to consider is uh, what is this chapter, this partial chapter that I just read, what does it reveal about God's people during the reign of these kings? What are some things that stick out about their character, how they're moving? What are some of those things? sure. There's lots of worship going on, lots of sacrifices going on, lots of festivals going on, lots of prayers going on. That's interesting. What else? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. A lot of lip service, hearts are far from God. What else do you see? Yeah. How are they treating their their fellow man? Yeah. Dealing corruptly, not taking care of the fathers, fatherless, not taking care of the widows. What else are they doing? What would you say? Rebelling. How? How? Yeah, that's not a good, right? You don't want to be compared to Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah. And when he looks at you and says, if not for me saving you and our part of you, you would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah, completely wiped out. So that's not a good comparison. They're rebelling horribly. They're disobedient. So just a partial read there. We could go the most for the better part of 35 chapters to see how God's people are moving. And the problem that we're seeing is that they're trusting in the wrong things. You mentioned rebellion. I want y'all to know that this is how God's people rebelled. Listen closely to this because it's kind of hard to see if you're, not, if you're not paying real close attention. They trusted in the wrong things and this is how God's people rebelled. Have you ever considered that trusting in the wrong things is an act of rebellion? What I mean is that their lack of trust in God caused them to look for comfort and endurance and assurance and happiness and hope in their daily dealings by trusting in things other than God. And God calls that rebellion. So what I think for a moment, at least as we're diving into this book of seeing so much rebellion, we should ask ourselves, take a moment to consider, are we rebelling against God in any of the same manner in the midst of our trials and our potential uncertainty? Because there are trials that they're going through. We're going to look at some of the things that the the pain, the heartache, the confusion that comes upon God's people from other countries and kings and leaders of other countries. And so there's real issues that they're facing. There's real uncertainty that they're facing, but in facing it, they're not facing it faithfully. They're putting their hope in all the wrong things. And so I want us to consider where are we looking for comfort and endurance and hope and peace in the midst of trial? Because the very reality here is that the way they rebelled was by putting their trust in other things. And so we're going to look at some of those other things particularly. Look at third, chapter 31. Turn over to Isaiah 31. We're looking at the other things that, that they put their hope in. Isaiah 31, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots, because they are many, and in horsemen, because they're very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel and consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. And when the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they're going to perish together. My question here is, it wasn't just a matter of God's children turning their back on him. To whom are they turning here? Yeah? What the world would think was strong? What the world would think was strong? Yeah. What, what's Israel's history with Egypt? Just real briefly. Good terms, bad terms, buddies, not buddies. Yeah. Slavery for over 400 years. And so now they're in a tight spot and where do they go to help? Who are they asking for help here? Egypt. They're looking to Egypt. They're looking to the king of Egypt. What I want us to see here, and we're going to look at it in a few more areas, is that they turn to other kings. So they turn to this earthly leadership, um, these, these leaders of different countries, because of the things that happen and the, the sort of um, the dynamic and the environment that's at play, they're fearful of things, there are, there are things that are hard, but what they do is they don't just turn from God, they turn to other kings. So here they're going to Egypt, and they're asking the king of Egypt for help. And the storyline goes something like this. Because I want to explain it briefly because it's a lot of the book and it's hard to read that much. When Assyria was a threat, Israel trusted Egypt. That didn't work out. And at one point, King Ahaz, the one that I mentioned was really bad before Hezekiah, he makes a treaty with Assyria, putting the nation's trust in the king of Assyria. He was fearful of Assyria. He thinks the way that we can stay safe because Assyria is so strong is I'm going to put, Ahaz says, I'm going to make a treaty with the king of Assyria. But much like putting their hope in Egypt, that didn't work out either. Because by the middle of the book, remember I mentioned Assyria laid siege to Jerusalem. That was this historical event that's captured right in the middle of it all. In the middle of the book, they lay siege to Jerusalem. Assyria then begins to crumble. And Babylon is gaining footing and growing in power and growing in in prestige. And so can you guess who then they put their trust in? Who do you think? Babylon, the king of Babylon. So it looked like Assyria was a problem. We're going to put our trust in the king of Egypt. Oh, well, that didn't really turn out. So let's just go with it and put our trust in the king of Assyria. Oh, here, sure enough, we make a treaty with them and after they lay siege to Jerusalem, they start kind of getting weaker and crumbling and falling in on themselves while Babylon is, is getting more powerful. So, you know what, now we're going to put our hope in the king of Babylon. But trusting foreign kings was not their only problem. That's certainly a problem that they were trusting foreign kings. I just want you to consider for a moment um, just our, our context and our world. Um, these are, this is changes in leadership, and they're going to put their trust in these earthly kings. And for us, it's not all that far-fetched. I mean, you, when you look at some of the things that are going on in the world, it's not all that stable. I mean, you've got Russia going on, there are things going on there with the Ukraine, and then a, a bunch of other stuff and things that could very much affect America, even though we think we're you know, indestructible. We're, we're, we're a few hundred years old. We're kind of young when it comes to being a country. And so, there's all these different things. There's different possibilities for changes, and this can seem very removed, like the king of Assyria. Who cares about the king of Babylon? Well, it's world powers, is what we're talking about, and putting your trust in them to keep you in a manner that makes you feel hopeful and at peace and like things aren't going to go bad. And so... We can see this if we, if we look through the right lenses, that it does have an impact on our context. So they put their trust in other kings, but that wasn't it. Look at 2, 6 through 8. Isaiah 2, 6 through 8. <coughs> Isaiah 2, 6 through 8. We're trying to see what else they put their trust in. So that we know that they put their trust in foreign kings. And then here it says, For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they're full of things from the east, of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made, so man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. My question here is, um, what else did they put their trust in? According to that, yeah, there's an anything and everything about it. There's there's something specific in here that I want y'all to see. Who are they bowing down to? Idols they made with their hands, what they've done is they've not only put their trust in foreign kings, now they've put their trust in foreign gods. It may seem so bizarre to us to bow down to an idol. We were watching a show last night where family was in India adopting a, 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 a kiddo, and um, they the, the, the people there were taking their idols and carrying them into the lake and worshiping and doing all... The, the, I, I mean, it's not this far fetched thing. Worshipping idols is, is very, um, it's something that's still very prevalent. And, and it, what you're doing is you're worshiping something created, even by your own hands. That's what they were bowing down to. Let me whittle this out of my own hands and I'll bow down to it. And we've heard the warnings in Scripture. <laughs> you're bowing down to something, they can't see you, they can't hear you, they can't help you, but that is where they're putting their trust because they can see it. I can exercise control over this and I can see it. So what they're doing here. It's for their own comfort in a time of turmoil, they're putting their trust in foreign gods. Look at 819. I've got a couple of verses I want you to see here. 819 says, And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead? on behalf of the living the question that's being posed here is they're saying others foreign kings with their foreign gods will lead you to say go consult the medium go consult the an necromancer and 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 the response here is what about god do they not believe god can hear them do they not believe that god can answer them do they not believe that god is more aware of their situation than they could ever be aware of it do they not trust god's answer do they not trust that god in fact Will answer. Something that we've learned in, our, in studying through, uh, I mean, that much of the Old Testament is the medium always has something to say. And sometimes God says, wait and be still. The medium always has something to say. If you got the time or you got the money, the medium will always say something to you. You'll never go to a palm reader and give them your money and then say, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm gonna give you your money, but I got nothing for you today. There's always something for them to say. But with God, it's different. Sometimes He says, wait. Or sometimes he says, you you can't know that. Or sometimes he says, I'm not going to give you an audible answer. You walk in faith and you trust me. But here what they're doing is they're not trusting him. They're not walking in faith, but they're consulting mediums. And it says that the, the mediums chirp and mutter. They chirp and mutter. That's the equivalent of the insight that you get when you consult a medium. Chirp and mutter. And then he goes on to say... How much sense does it make people who are alive for you to go and talk to the dead about the alive people? It's like going to a seminary and saying, guys can, a seminary, (laughs) a cemetery. And uh, like going to a cemetery, a graveyard and saying, hey, y'all, can you give me some insight? I've got a family. Can you help me with that? And expecting an answer. You're going to the dead to ask for insight, wisdom, and truth on, on live people. So it's, it's utter foolishness. It looks stupid as we, as we say it out loud, as we read it. It's like, why would people do that? It's because they're not trusting God. They're trusting in foreign gods. Look at 27.9. 27.9 says, Therefore, by this the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones, crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. God has already communicated within that first chapter how he despises the incense, and the asherah poles are an abomination, and here we see that they are present in Israel's movement and in their worship and what they're putting their trust in. And then 28, 14 through 15, just the next page, is shocking. We will go to crazy lengths to try to have some sense of assurance and how we're moving and what we think is good and how things are going to go. And they were fearful of certain things, and so they were trying to do things to get rid of the fear. And here in twenty-eight, fourteen, and 15, it says this, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have made an agreement when the overwhelming whip passes through us, it will not come to us, for we have, made lies of our, our, we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we've taken shelter. God's warning them, and then he goes on to say something about a quarterstone um, in Zion, which, in which he's referring to Christ. But just to be clear, before getting to the part about Christ, what have they tried to make an agreement with? Who'd they make a, a deal with? Death? You made a deal with death. Is that, is that really what it says? An, an agreement with Sheol, a covenant with death. What they've done here is they're, they've made an arrangement with death. They think that because of the arrangement that they made, the sacrifice that they brought, the thing that they confessed, that because of that, death heard them, and now death will not strike them when it comes through. So if death comes through to strike some people, They're good because they provided their sacrifice and and they made an agreement with death. It's utter foolishness. Can you make an agreement with death? What do we know about death? We know that God knows every day, every day that he has appointed every hair on your head and that not even a sparrow falls without him knowing. And yet they're sitting here saying, you know what, I can get around that by making a deal with death utter foolishness. They've turned from God. They're putting their trust in all the wrong things. Chapters 41, 44, 57, and 65 all have very long accounts about idolatry where the people of God worshiped and gave themselves over to things that were not God. And look at 22, 8 through 11. 22, 8 through 11. We're going to see what else they put their trust in. At first, this looks wise, but I want you to pay attention to how these few verses close out. It says, he's taken away the covering of Judah. In that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. You saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool. You counted the houses of Jerusalem. You broke down the houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago. So finally, what else have they put their trust in? Themselves. Themselves. They put their trust in themselves. This may be easy for some of us to relate to. Some of this stuff is kind of hard to relate to. It feels a bit removed. Putting your trust in yourself is a horrible place to put your trust. Horrible. You will always let yourself down if you do that. This is... um, He warns them again in chapter 29 about self-reliance. But what he's saying is, you went through and you looked at this and you got this straight and you put this check in the block and you checked on this. Do I have this set up? Is this safety net in place? I'm going to move this to make sure I'm okay. I'm going to put these things in place to make sure I'm not harmed. But you never looked to me. That's what God is saying. That whole time you were being diligent, going through things, but you never looked to me. You were completely self-reliant. And so what, what that reveals is they, they finally, they put them their faith, their trust in themselves and what they could accomplish and what they could wrap their hands around and what they could put in place to make sure that nothing would happen or nothing would overcome them or nothing would overtake them and they trusted in themselves. And look at 9, 10 through 16. Isaiah 9, 10 through 16, it says, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dress stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries, or adversaries of resin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east, the Philistines on the west, devour Israel with an open mouth. For all his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel, head and tail, palm, branch and reed, and its elders and leaders. And what we see here is he struck them, and they did not look to him. If the Lord strikes you, if something happens, you turn to him. That's what we're learning here. You don't turn away from him. The people did not turn to him who struck them, and they did not inquire of the Lord of hosts. If you have something in your life that seems like maybe unexpected, hard to understand, inquire of the Lord of hosts. I was reading in Jeremiah earlier this week that those who seek him, find him. Those who want to understand something, you can go to him for understanding. James talks about you don't have any wisdom because you don't ask for it. And so it says he grants it to us um, without reproach in and in a full measure. And so if you have something going on in your life that doesn't make sense, don't just say, you know what, that doesn't make sense because the reality is what do we learn in Ecclesiastes and in Proverbs? God doesn't always make sense to you because you're not God. He's put eternity in your heart. He's given you things to be busy with, but that creates this dynamic where you want to know everything from the beginning to the end, but you can't make good sense of it because you're not God. So that means God will sometimes do things that don't make sense to you. But you know what He allows you to do? He allows you to let your request be made known. He allows you to go to Him and ask questions. In Christ, that's the kind of access you have to God, and it's a much much better option than just self reliance and saying, you know what, I can't make sense of that. I'm going to look. Inside and figure out what's going on here, and I'll take care of this. That's not a good default. God is accessible in Christ, and He allows us to even ask questions and come to Him for wisdom. Finally, the last thing we'll consider tonight about where they put misplaced trust is they put their trust in their own unfaithful leaders. Ahaz was one of the worst. He was the one who made a treaty with the king of Assyria, and Mark Dever notes, he says, whenever God's appointed leaders, Take the people away from God's ways. We must not follow them. Had their hearts and hopes been trained on what God had revealed about himself in the word, had they trusted in God and hoped in him as their protection, they would not have been led astray as a people. This is difficult because you know the leadership was put in place for their benefit. But in the case of Ahaz um, and others... The leadership failed them miserably. So the obvious question here is, and it's a question that I'm posing as one of the leaders of this church. Do you know God's ways well enough to know if you're being led astray? Do you know God's ways well enough to know that you're being led astray? We're not puppets. We don't just... Take everything for what it is. You need to know your word. That's that's a level of accountability that God puts in place even for your elders and your deacons here. If something comes out of our mouth that is untrue, we're held accountable for that. There, There are things that have come out of the Pope's mouth that it's a lingo of, this is what the church believes now. And you have to wonder, Do people know enough of what this says to where if someone stands up and says, this is outdated, or this is misunderstood, or this needs to be tweaked, this is, our context is more difficult than what this can deal with. And so we're modern and we're changing things. One of the biggest mistakes the church has made throughout the course of the years over and over again is letting culture change and then it changes with the culture. God has given us timeless disciplines that are always solid, always firm, like no matter, I mean, there's so many changes that have happened, the industrial revolution, things like that. Men, there's nothing better that you'll ever be able to do on your short time on earth than to lead your family like a shepherd. That's timeless. That will never change. There's no better way for you to spend your time There are these things that the church has done over time where the culture will change and we'll try to change with it. And the culture will change and we'll try to change with it. And the culture will try to change with it. And what you end up with is maybe at best a shadow of God's design. And God's design is timeless. And so here what we're seeing is God can be trusted. But we have to know what this says because there are times where we will be led astray. People will say things that are so far-fetched or they'll say, they'll say it in the, in the tone of being progressive or modern or forward thinking. But when they do that and they abandon this, you don't follow that leadership. If someone does that and it seems even maybe, well, you know what, I like that. That seems a little more in tune with our culture. If they're abandoning this, you cannot follow them ever. If anyone in this pulpit, if any one of your elders, abandons this, don't follow us. God's word is timeless. His purposes are eternal, and He makes it clear to us what we should never abandon. and He's completely trustworthy. And we have to know as we're going through things, that we are prone to put our trust in the wrong things. Do you know God's ways well enough to know if you're being led astray? It can lead us to a couple other questions. What are you putting your hope in? What have you put your hope in in the past and found that it left you unfulfilled and wanting? Is what you're putting your hope in enough to focus your whole being? Is what you're trusting in enough to carry you throughout your entire life? Is your hope in something that's timeless and eternal and unshakable? Because we've got these big names that we can look at in a unique way right now because of where we where we live and what time we live in. Because who... Wh- who was feared a lot during the time of Isaiah? Who was feared? What countries? Assyria? Babylon? Philistines? Egypt? Who was it for the Hebrews? Man, Pastor Ben's up in here right now. Y'all better answer that question. Well, were they, each other, the and the king? they were battling each other? Who did, ha- who did the Hebrew church have to look across the street at? Rome. Rome. What do we know today about Egypt, Syria, Babylon, and Rome? They're not the powerful, terrifying, almost seems unable to be overtaken things that they were in the past. Who's scared of Rome right now? It's, it's, a, it's a tourist attraction. Lots of beautiful history, but no one's scared of Rome right now. And the church still stands. That's something that we're seeing in Hebrews. Over and over again, we get to see it again tonight in Isaiah. The church stands, and the church is growing, the church is moving forward, and as long as we don't abandon this, and we trust God the right way, it will continue to until Christ returns. Dever notes that many churches put their hope in numbers, as he's looking at all these figures that they're worshiping, and as an aside, he says, "As long as we're growing numerically, then we must be doing something right, right?" And um, that's that's a that's actually a full-on designed church paradigm that people go by. If there's numbers and there's a lot of people, then it's good. Period. In fact, when we first started here, we had this stupid placard in our hall that told us how many people were in our Sunday school and how much the offering was and how many people were were in worship. And almost at the end of every Sunday, for a few Sundays, Ben and I would kind of feel led to, let's go take a look. And depending on the numbers up there, it's like, well, what? It's like, 39, yes! We did it! We did what? Numerical growth is not the sign of biblical success and eternal standing. Devers says it like this, written figures can be idols much more easily than carved figures. Written figures can be idols much more easily than carved figures. The idol of numbers can, be, can very much eclipse truth. Because if what you care about is numbers more than anything, you will eventually abandon this. Because sometimes people want things that tickle their ears and things like that, and, and this sometimes doesn't do it. To consider the solution, turn to chapter 40. So we have plenty of examples of them putting their hope in the wrong things. Foreign kings, foreign gods, themselves, unfaithful leadership. Look at 40.18. This is one of those, we've cited this as, as a chapter to help you not lose your awe as we've gone through Hebrews. 40.18 says this, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts, it, and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then? will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Look at verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint, he does not grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. This is the one whom God's people should have always trusted, He's always trustworthy. He's never proven anything but trustworthy. We can look at our entire history of our entire ancestry and know that God has never been anything but completely trustworthy. Even when we didn't deserve it, even when we turned our backs on him, even when they served foreign gods, even when they bowed down to foreign kings, even when they trusted in themselves, even when they followed stupid leadership, God has always been faithful. He's never once failed his people. Romans 8 reminds us that nothing separates us from the love of God. He's the one in whom God's people should have always trusted. And particularly, I want us to see that it's not just this sort of vague trust. We can trust in his judgment. Look at 34.8. We can trust in God's judgment. 34.8 says this, For the Lord has a day of vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. Look at 24, 1 through 3. If you can't turn to all of them, just write them down and spend some time looking at them on your own. 24, 1 through 3 says this. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. It shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with the mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken his word. We can trust God's judgment. He says it, sure. That's part of the reason we're not a vengeful people who look for our own revenge. When bad things happen to God's people or someone wrongs us, we don't say, all right, you're going to get yours. Romans 10 says, vengeance is mine, so says the Lord, because his judgment is sure and we can trust it. It will happen. Also, we can trust God's coming deliverance and salvation. It's good to remember that God does not only bring judgment, and because of this, he alone is to be trusted. This is the very lesson that God teaches them in the very dramatic historical fashion at the center of the book. Remember I mentioned the siege of Assyria on Jerusalem? I want us to read that in closing. Look at 36. I want us to see the sureness of God's judgment, and I want us to see what happens to God's people once they've exhausted all their options, once they've bowed down to anything and everything, almost, other than God, and they're absolutely hopeless. I want to see what happens. 36, 18 through 20, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, is brutal, And Jerusalem is surrounded by about 185,000 trained Assyrian troops. So the southern kingdom has essentially been uh, infiltrated, and Jerusalem is there, and Jerusalem is surrounded by 200,000 almost hacked off trained Assyrian troops. And their leader is wanting to not speak in a language that they may or may not understand. He wants to make sure that the most common people in Jerusalem can understand the threat that is coming across. That would be like someone threatening the United States, and saying I want to make sure I speak English so that they can all hear what I'm about to do to him. I mean, this dude is is hardcore. And so it says in, in 38 or 36, 18 through 20. This king says, "Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you." So Hezekiah is the good king, and just so y'all know, it was him being a good king that drew the despise of the Assyrians. He said, "We're not we're not going to bow down." the Asherah poles, and the incense. We're not going to bow down to foreign gods. We're not going to do that. Hezekiah is bringing about these reforms from things that he's learned in his study, and that's part of what drew the ire of the Assyrians. And so they're saying, beware, people of Israel, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. So this is an enemy of God saying, don't be misled if someone tells you the Lord will deliver us. He goes on to say, has any of the gods of the nations delivered their land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Surferi? Have, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. But they were silent. Look at thirty-seven twenty-one. He goes on, and man, this guy... Reading it out loud is almost difficult because you're like, oh man, it's almost, it's almost like when you hear someone speaking bl- in a blasphemous manner about God and you just kind of like, I'm just going to take a couple steps over to the side because I don't really know what lightning might be going, boom, and knock you out for what you're saying. He goes on in 37, 21, uh, he says, then Isaiah, the son of Hamas, sent to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, um, uh, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennachery, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. And um, look at 37, 23 through 29. It says, uh, he mocks God and um, Hezekiah essentially prays for deliverance. And he goes on, and here we see, I guess just starting in 22, uh, she despises you. She scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. So he has mocked God and he has gone on and on. And this is the response Whom have you mocked and reviled? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights? Against the Holy One of Israel. That's who. By your servants, you have mocked the Lord. You have said, With many chariots, I've gone up uh, the heights of the mountains to the far recesses of Lebanon to cut down its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up the sole of my foot, all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I shall bring to pass. You shall make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down. You're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me. During all this worshiping of other kings and idols and this Sennacherib saying, your God can't do anything. God says, "I, I see how you rage against me. I can see that. I'm not like your idol who can't see or can't hear. I can see everything and I can hear everything. And he goes on to say, I know you're sitting down. You're going out and coming in and you're raging against me because you've raged against me. And your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back in the way in which you came. I mean, he he called out God, and God answered. God said, oh, okay. I can't deliver my people. And um, at this point, I want you to remember there's 200,000 warriors surrounding Jerusalem right now, and this is what is supposed to be said to these 200,000 warriors. Look at 36 through 38. what finally happens to those warriors who seem so sure, so dominant. It seems so certain that Jerusalem is about to get just, just hammered. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Wouldn't you love to be one of God's people in that moment? 185,000 And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, remember the guy saying, I'm going to speak in your native tongue, and I'm going to tell you, don't let Hezekiah fool you, your God won't deliver you from me. I'm bigger than God, no one's ever been delivered from me. And that Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch his god, Adramelech and Sherezar, his sons, struck him down with the sword. And after they escaped into the land of Ararat, Urshidon, his son, reigned in his place. When Jerusalem had no other hope, God came as their helper. They had no other hope. They had even turned their back on the only hope that they had. He alone can be trusted. One thing that we can take from Isaiah, God alone can be trusted over and over and over again, whether it's Assyria or Egypt or Babylon or Rome or whoever else, seems to be this ultimate power. God alone can be trusted. It is only his judgment, his deliverance, and his salvation that are sure. I mentioned next week we won't be meeting, but the week after that we're going to come back and we're going to look at so much that's actually said about Christ in um in the book of isaiah and so much that is prophesied concerning him and we're going to consider um not just how were they faithless but even more so how can they have been more faithful and how can we be more faithful in these times of uncertainty and that's what we'll be looking at next time so let's pray and then yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 I think it's a great idea. For those of you who don't know, um, Billy Vaughn has been a member of our church for six or eight years, something like that. I mean, many years, and um, and he passed away uh, this this morning. That was this morning, right? Long day, and uh, and and he was faithful. He when cancer was a certainty, um, when um, trial was ahead, when he was scared to live by himself. There, there was a perseverance there, and he finished well. And so his finishing well is, is noteworthy, especially as we're talking about don't put your hope in other things, um, but, but trusting in the Lord uh, firm to the end. And that's, Philippians 4 talks about if anything's recountable, or if anything's notable, commendable, worthy of praise, beautiful, that we should say it publicly, and that's actually a very timely thing. I'm glad you mentioned that because he finished well, and, and he did not put his trust elsewhere when it may have been easier to Um, but he persevered to the end and the lord showed him much grace and mercy as he um, as he passed from this earth so let's let's pray and then we'll be uh, we'll be dismissed lord we come to you now and i'm uh, i'm very thankful for uh what you have shown us in isaiah just about we're so prone to putting our trust in the wrong things and i'm thankful for how trustworthy you prove yourself to be over and over and over again i pray that personally you would forgive me for putting my trust in temporary, fleeting, earthly things and forever thinking that I could receive deliverance or hope, like real, eternal, firm hope um, anywhere other than you. Lord, we also praise you and thank you for taking Billy home and for allowing him to finish well. Um, in his final days and the final years of his life, he walked well and he was consistent and he was an encouragement to many and I'm thankful for that, and I'm thankful that we can see that as a commendable thing as we see how easy it is to put our trust elsewhere when times become difficult. And for him, cancer was not his ultimate reality. Circumstances were not his ultimate reality, but a a, a forever better priest and king was his ultimate reality, and he trusted you him to the end, and I'm thankful for that. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for our time together tonight, and we pray these things in Jesus'